0: Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself. I'm your host, Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Andrea Bonier, who is also a book author. She's here to talk about her new book called Detox Your Thoughts, Quit Negative Self-Talk for Good, and Discover the Life You've Always Wanted. This was such a fun episode. First, I I wanna thank her because we recorded this before, and, or at least I thought I recorded it, and I didn't. It uh, didn't record. So she was kind and gracious enough to come back and, and join us. Uh, but in today's episode, we, we, we get started off talking about caffeinated naps. Yeah, have you heard of these? Me either. But we talk about it. Uh, but we, we specifically really get into how to label our emotions. We talk about cognitive diffusion, uh, which I would never heard of, but it was a, a fascinating uh, uh, discussion, and and she gives us a very applicable way of labeling our emotions so that we don't feel overwhelmed by them. We also get into the idea that we have to be reminded that we are not our thoughts. I'm going to say that again. We are not our thoughts, and, and she has a, a very um, uh, skillful way of of educating us on how we can separate ourselves from our thoughts so that we don't get caught up in it uh, and then we go into this idea of the myth of arrival i know i've never heard of it i thought and and it was so profound uh that i had to write it down 10 times and 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 and, and look it up and 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 talk, talk to it talked about it with my girl i was like oh the myth of you got to hear about this so and and that was also linked into the hedonic adaptation. I know I'm throwing a lot of words at you. Uh, that's why you got to tune in. That's why you tune in. You think you think I'm bringing you some BuzzFeed article? Come on. We're talking about myth of arrival the hedonic adaptation. We're we about to take off here. And then we wrap this whole thing up with uh, discussing blind spots and, and why we all have them and how do we navigate it. And, and, and so that uh, we're not caught off guard by our thoughts and our emotions and we're not we're not completely uh, thrown off. Uh, it's it's okay. Uh, we all have blind spots, but uh, how do we? What's the antidote for those? Right. So, with that said, let's get into the episode. And and you you already know what I'm about to say. Go to thrivewithleo.com for one on one coaching with yours truly. Because, like I said, I start this podcast because uh, I'm going through all these things. I'm having all these uh, uh, blind spots and. Uh, hedonic adaptations uh taken. I'm I'm right, I'm right in the storm with you, baby. So let's get into the episode.
1: Caffeinated naps. Have you heard about this?
0: Oh uh, please I- tell me about this. <laughs> anything with caffeine I want caffeinated everything. Naps, coffee cake, <laughs> anything with caffeine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well I haven't read too much into it because I'm the type of person that if I have too much caffeine, my heart's beating out of my chest. But um, some people I've been seeing have been doing this thing where you drink caffeine and then you somehow nap right immediately after that. And then it's somehow I don't know if the timing works out. Maybe that by the time you get out of your nap, then you're even more fully awake because of the caffeine. I don't know. It sounded like an oxymoron to me, like drinking a cup of coffee and then going to bed. But some people swear by it, apparently.
0: Uh, hold on. So here's what's fascinating about what you said. I'm taking online Spanish uh, lessons. Uh, My uh my, uh, instructor, she lives in uh, Medellin, and she was telling me this morning that she can't drink caffeine because it puts her to sleep.
1: Yes. Yes. I had one client like that. And we would always joke about it because, yeah, it had this paradoxical effect. That's what she would say. And I really have never come across anybody else who claims that. But apparently for some folks, it really does do that. But even for folks that it doesn't do that, apparently they're finding a way to nap while drinking it, which that, would, <laughs> that wouldn't that would work for me.
0: Well, I, I think it's, it, it falls in line with the research, you know, with uh, the treatment for ADHD, where uh, mm-hmm. the prescription is actually a stimulant. And yes. uh, and I think that it it works for people who are already kind of hyper or hyper, I don't know if it's hyper aware or whatever, uh, where it just then cancels each other out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, taking a stimulant for the average person does this, but if you have ADHD, it does that, And In reality, you know, the reason why it can be so addictive to people that are taking it for non-therapeutic, non-ADHD reasons is that for all of us, it really helps improve our baseline focus, right? I mean, it helps us sort of have tunnel vision into what we're doing and the task at hand and to sort of stop paying attention as much to intrusions and to actually be stimulated by what is in front of us. And so, yeah, I mean, again, as a mom, it's like just the idea of giving a stimulant to a kid who's already hyper seems so paradoxical. But really, it's amazing because it's about helping them focus. And when their brain is at a baseline attention deficit, it really sort of brings them up to the normal ability to focus. Whereas your average college kid that's kind of just taking it recreationally, suddenly they're staying up all night writing a paper. Uh,
0: At least they think they are. And they realize it's just a bunch of Q's and R's that they've been hitting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, I'm yeah. excited to have you on uh, a, a second time. The first time <laughs> I thought I was recording and I wasn't. So you were gracious enough.
1: Awesome. Now it's my pleasure. It was a great discussion. So why not repeat it?
0: <laughs> uh, you know, your book, I, I, I want to say kudos. And, and my girlfriend is, is standing right in front of me so she can uh, testify to this. I I used your uh, reframe yesterday. Uh, uh-huh. i fr- i forget specifically how I used it but uh, I was like I'm starting to notice feelings of uh discomfort <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was like I think I need to go I think I need to go to bed it was something like that you know yeah. but
1: it's oh, great
0: it felt so cheesy to say however mm-hmm. it also felt so um uh soothing i, I, mm-hmm. I, like, I like I was like, Oh, snap. Like to this whole like I, I'm starting to notice feelings like there's something so powerful about that string of words. How did yes. you uh, there's so many ways to to express our emotions. How did you come to like that phrase specifically?
1: Yeah. You know what I love about that phrase, and I'm so glad to hear that it was helpful for you, is that first of all, it's it's non-judgmental, right? It's just being an observer. I'm starting to notice something really isn't placing any value judgment on it. What we normally do for ourselves is say, ugh. I wish I weren't this anxious, or why am I feeling so sad? Or, you know, this idea of not having the right to feel our feelings. But when we use the word notice, we're really talking about just being curious, being non judgmental, being gentle with ourselves. And so it suddenly makes it feel more okay because we're not sort of fighting the feeling, we're just being an observer of it, just like we would observe anything else outside of ourselves.
0: I like that. It's almost like taking a scientific approach, right? The first thing a scientist does is make observations. He's not judging what he's seeing, he's not labeling anything, he's just noticing mm-hmm. what happens.
1: Exactly. And that's such a powerful, powerful thing. And it's powerful physically and emotionally. You know, so many times when I work with people who have really severe anxiety, it is so powerful for them to just notice it in their body without actually getting caught into it. You know, so many times we're inside our own heads and we can't sit there and say, you know, okay, my heart is beating pretty fast. Instead, it just, we immediately fast forward and the heart beating fast makes our thoughts rush and makes us feel like we're having a heart attack and, you know, we can't pause. Whereas there really is power in that pause, that ability to say, here's what's going on. I'm looking at it, I'm turning it over in my head, I'm observing it, and we can actually validate our feelings more that way, whether they're emotional or whether they're in our bodies. It's like suddenly it's okay that we have this and we don't have to fight ourselves for having it in the first place because so many times it's, it's not just the feelings, it's the feelings about the feelings that are so tough for us to deal with.
0: Ooh, the feelings about the feelings. I I love that kind of talk right there. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But what's also powerful about what you said, um, noticing it in the body. Actually, uh, just an hour before this, this podcast, I was like, oh, I'm noticing anxiety in my stomach. And what was so liberating about that is that I'm like, oh, it's not my entire body. That's experiencing mm-hmm. this anxiety. My feet were fine. My phalanges were fine. My elbows, mm-hmm. my, my nostrils. Uh, <laughs> it was just in my stomach. It was just a small part of the, the territory uh, that, yes. that needed to be addressed. And, and, and so it, it kind of made me feel more powerful when I otherwise may have felt uh, powerless over the emotion.
1: Yes. Isn't that remarkable? Because really what you were doing there is you weren't letting your entire self feel like it was enveloped in this kind of big blob of anxiety, right? So many times with panic attacks or just with feeling off or sometimes with the darkness of depression, it feels like this sort of amorphous cloud, right? It's it's hard to actually break it down. It's hard to label it specifically. And so in that case, what you were doing, it, it does sound like it makes so much sense and being helpful because it felt so much more manageable to say, you know, this is this is part of my body that's feeling this, but it's not me. And I think, you know, again, with panic and anxiety in particular, so much of breaking the cycle of panic attacks is really breaking it down very specifically, you know, okay, this nausea, it's, it's not going to kill me. It doesn't have to mean my body's out of control or, you know, these heart palpitations, I know they're a reaction to my nervousness. They don't have to spiral into, you know, me completely losing control of my body. And so breaking it down and labeling it so specifically really makes it so much easier to gain control over.
0: You know, the, the other thing I, I love to incorporate into this and is the, the idea of uh, zooming out sometimes also helps Mm -hmm. me to manage my emotions where, and and I'm better at this when I'm hiking. I think this is the power of being outdoors uh, Mm -hmm. where maybe I'm feeling, you know, anxious in my, I notice it in my stomach, but then I look at the trees, I look Mm -hmm. at the birds and I go, wow, they, they're pretty calm. You know, they're Mm. they're pretty chill. And and that kind of brings some uh, tranquility, uh, to me, some inner peace to notice that, um, to take the time to notice that the, the world around me, uh, is, uh, you know, pretty serene and pretty chill.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's such a beautiful frame of reference, especially when it's in nature, because there's really something about nature that, I mean, we have the data. We know that, when we connect with nature, it does evoke something in us that that really is calming in some ways. And you don't have to be the type of person that's, you know, a total outdoors person to still feel that sometimes. I mean, I believe there's even data about houseplants and <laughs> just looking at those in your indoor space and how that can bring calm. Because when you think about it, the wide open space of nature, the green, it's its a sense of life. It's a sense of, you know, looking at the horizon makes you feel more calm because you can kind of see that no predators are coming, quite frankly. You know, that's evolutionarily why it was helpful. But But seeing things growing, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people in the pandemic really being calmed by that, especially even just growing something from seed, you know, in their kitchen window. There's something so powerful about the fact that life keeps moving and that life keeps growing and it's external from us. And yet we're also connected to it in some way. It's really almost metaphysical, but I find it to be so powerful and the data really backs that up
0: you know it's interesting a friend me and a friend were having a conversation about why uh like top godfathers like mafia hitmen are always gardeners and mm. you know we were like it's it's part of it is they they're seeing so much death and destruction around them that even they need to see life and something you know going from a seed to a flower uh or from a seed to a vegetable like we we all need to see Growth and life happening around us. It it feeds us and nourishes us uh, in a way.
1: Yes. Oh my goodness! What's so interesting <laughs> about the mafia man? I I never put that to that together. Although, admittedly, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of violence in movies. In terms of, I usually am turning away. So some of those movies, I leave them up to my husband. But but I think it's so true, and I've experienced that myself in times of loss. There's been, you know, I'm not a particularly good gardener by any means, but there's something somewhat healing about watching something grow. Grow, especially after you've you've lost someone and you feel like oh you know what is life all about does life end but but in reality to know that we're all connected and things continue to grow oh it's it's just such a special sentiment that can really go a long way
0: I, That's why it, and it's also like the, the most beautiful and endearing parts of a movie uh, when there's a family and and like there's like three kids and, and then you see on the wall their names and and, and then the marker of like their height. You know, mm. every every birthday they they check off, uh, they draw that line across to see how much taller that they've gotten. And there's just always mm-hmm. something beautiful about when we see that uh, in, in, in a movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of times the the most meaningful celebrations of life and, and funerals, you know, they're. There are children. There are. There's real life. There's faux pas. There's you know thing. There's laughter. There's still that sense of things moving forward, even in the face of loss. Because it, I think you know when you really think about feeling connected, feeling connected to other people, feeling connected to the earth, it's that sense that can really bring calm for a lot of people.
0: I love it. Can we turn my my I think my volume's up a little bit too much on your. On your side, I'm getting a slight echo.
1: Sure, I'll turn it down.
0: I love it. Uh, In your book, uh, how about now? Hello, hello. Perfect. Yeah, is that better? It's perfect. Uh, You know, so in your in your book, detox your thoughts, quit negative self-talk for good, and discover the life you've always wanted. We've already talked about acknowledging uh, the thought. Can, Can you talk to us about labeling the thought? I I especially love this. Because I have friends who have teddy bears that they talk to to represent their emotions. But can you talk mm-hmm. to us about labeling uh, the thought and the emotion?
1: Yeah. So labeling the thought is all part of the goal to do what we call diffuse from our thoughts. So this concept of cognitive diffusion basically means that we need to take a step away from our thoughts and recognize them first of all not as us necessarily. Our thoughts are not us even though oftentimes in our culture, there's this message, you know, you are what you think and all of this. But So cognitive diffusion means stepping outside of our thoughts, realizing that they're not us, and also separating our thoughts from the automatically assuming they're true, right? So we want to sort of defuse or disconnect our thoughts from this idea of being this all-powerful thing that encompasses us. So, so when we're able to label our thoughts, we start that process because we distance ourselves from them. You know, I'm having the thought that this party's going to be a disaster. That's a very different concept than this party's going to be a disaster. Or, you know, I'm having the thought that things aren't going to get better is a very different concept than things are never going to get better. And then when you can take it one step further, like with your friends and, and stuffed animals, and it might sound goofy, but actually, self-distance by labeling your thought as if you were narrating it in the third person, it's another step that can often be really helpful. So, you know, Andrea's having the thought that tomorrow is going to be a terrible day or, you know, Andrea's having the thought that she's going to blow this interview. You know, that automatically by labeling it in that way, it reminds us that a thought need not be automatically true. And it also isn't something to automatically absorb as defining us. You know, we have thoughts that are arbitrary and random and strange, and we don't have to define ourselves by them all the time because they can just be observed and labeled and they can be let go of. And I think that's kind of revolutionary for a lot of people. You know, so many people will come to my practice fighting so hard with their thoughts. You know, they think of their thoughts as the enemy. And so we take this totally new approach where we accept that certain thoughts will be there. We just enact some practices where they're not going to stick and they're not going to become part of us.
0: I I love that idea. And and you're right. I think because I know, especially for me, like I grew up thinking that, if well, if I'm thinking it, then I must find it true. And and so, like and for people who think like that, like, where are the thoughts then coming from? like if if it's if it, if we're not our thoughts, then why are we having these thoughts? is it is it be is it is it from social conditioning like what's what's causing some of the thoughts that we're having?
1: Yeah, you know that's such a great question. It's almost philosophical in a way. We absorb so much. You know, we have so many different messages coming at us from all times, whether it be from media, whether it be from the standards we grew up with, from our culture, from the relationships that we have, from the nonstop sort of bombardment of information that comes our way. And we're always trying to process that. Our brains, you know, they're almost like computers in the sense that they're always filtering information. They're always making decisions. What should we remember? What should we not? What should we pay attention? Attention to. And so it makes sense that there's kind of this constant stream that gets edited and refined. And then, okay, we have this thought, it comes in. Do we keep it? Do we not? And so part of it is just the way that we interpret our environments. And we're trying to assimilate all this different information from 20 years ago, 10 years ago, this morning. And we're constantly trying to make sense of it. I mean, it's almost like dreaming when you think of it. I mean, I think of dreaming as sort of your brain taking out the trash, right? So sometimes a dream that you have can be really meaningful. Like, you know, you might see something in your trash can that really is representative of something big in your life. And other times it's kind of this random stuff that's like, ah, who put that in there? I don't even know how that got in there. That has not anything to do with me. And so I think to some extent, even our conscious thought processes are, are similar, but they feel sometimes like they're this omniscient narrator that that defines us and that sees all and that is, you know, understanding of everything. And in reality, sometimes our thoughts are, as we say, unreliable narrators. They're hecklers, right? They're they're the anxious voice that comes from, you know, something that happened in our past that got kind of reinforced. And so when we can learn to accept the presence of that thought, it actually... Helps us let go of it more quickly. You know, none of us want to accept these thoughts. It feels like, oh, that's that's the wrong technique. We shouldn't be accepting our thoughts, but there's a huge difference between accepting accepting the presence of a thought versus accepting it as truth or as part of us. And and that key difference is what lets us let go.
0: It, I love all of this. It, it makes me uh, draw a parallel to. I have a friend who's a cop, and it. I was like, "How do people? How are people able to identify when a cop enters the room? You always see that uh, in a movie. It's like, oh, that mm-hmm. guy's a cop, and, <laughs> and 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 it's because when a cop enters the room, they make eye contact with everybody in the room, and mm-hmm. it's a way of letting the if there are, if there are criminals in there, if there's somebody up to nefarious deeds, uh, mm-hmm. of letting them know that they're seen." So, if something happens. I got you locked in. I know who you are. I know what you look like. I can report you uh, and so i I bring it up to say uh i I view emotions as the same way of like a lot mm-hmm. of times we try to turn away from our emotions. we try to uh numb the emotions when really we need to look at our emotions and it goes to acknowledging and labeling it so that it it kind of diffuses anything that really might happen like we think the emotion is hard to handle now uh you know wait till you you turn your back and don't even look at and don't even uh take the time to to acknowledge it and and then see what it really grows into
1: Yes. Yes. And that's so key because we learn to avoid these uncomfortable emotions and then we just make them bigger in the process because we can't face them. And we tell ourselves that we can't face them because when we chronically turn away from a difficult emotion, we're sending ourselves the message that it is scary, that we can't handle it, that it is Bad in a way that we can't deal with. And it also denies us the practice of managing that emotion. So it's a double whammy in that sense. We're, we're reinforcing the message that we can't handle the emotion. And then we're also not able to use any skills to actually get better at dealing with it. And so then, you know, people are always surprised, but it does eventually come back to bite us because there's only so much that you can push an emotion away. And I've seen it, you know, but it does it does come back. It really does, unless we can actually learn to acknowledge it and sit with it and learn something from it.
0: Is there a place uh, uh, or a situation where it's okay to ignore the emotion for the time being like is there is there ever a situation where it's like too much is happening i can't deal with these emotions
1: yeah, I do think that certain times we do sort of need to numb out. And and I think that's the difference between, you know, making a chronic pattern of avoidance versus, oh, I need a distraction right now. You know, like during this this strange time of lockdown and social isolation, I've worked with a lot of people sort of trying to figure out, all right, is this a problem that I'm doing this or is this just I need to take the edge off because life is strange and scary right now? And I think the bottom line is, you know, when you turn away from an emotion, what's the ultimate effect of that when you kind of come back to reality? So you're zoning out, you're vegging out, you're avoiding the emotion somehow, that doesn't have to neg- be a negative thing if you actually come back and you feel like you can face things a little bit better. Like, okay, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna veg out with a movie right now. I'm dwelling on that worry. I don't want to face it, so I'm gonna distract myself with some TV. Then you come back from the distraction and things are kind of okay. Whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, you get so used to distracting yourself or you're using a distractor where you emerge from it and you feel worse. I drank too much oh, I just went and spent a bunch of money online because I really needed to numb out or, oh, I watched that movie, but then I binged four more movies and now I haven't slept at all. You know, coming out of that, it's very clear that you weren't really taking the edge off. You were sort of digging a hole for yourself. So yeah, I mean, sometimes we do need distractions. Sometimes things are too much to deal with and we need to put them aside. But The key is not making it so much of a habit or not doing it so severely that really it becomes a chronic pattern that that just really diminishes our ability to handle it.
0: I I love that you said taking an edge off versus digging a hole. I I think uh, enough of us haven't learned um, the balance between those two. I, I I was speaking for myself specifically, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, uh, but I think, uh, as mo- I think a lot of people struggle with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's so prevalent in so many ways. I mean, certainly addiction comes to mind, you know, it often starts out as taking the edge off and then it turns more into totally needing to escape. And then of course, there's a point at which it becomes, you know, even the reality is is so uncomfortable, whether it's because of, you know, withdrawal syndrome, uh, symptoms or what have you, or the the further hole that addiction can dig, then it's, you know, even reality is, is totally unbearable. And so it's such a tough cycle, but we see it with so many things. I mean, there are so many activities in life where a little bit of them feels pretty functional and maybe even joyful but then when we start relying on them to avoid and escape the reality of life it really creates a situation for ourselves where the reality of life is a lot harder to bear and and that's why finding a balance takes time and it takes effort and and it's a you know it takes practice sometimes we err on the side of too much or too little and I think that's what's been hard about this particular time in American life you know I'm hearing from so many people well I'm I'm drinking almost every day now and I didn't normally do that, but I'm also not going out to restaurants and drinking there. So I don't know, you know, and it's so hard to find that balance and that's where we have to give ourselves a little grace, but, but also just be aware and honest with ourselves about what's going on.
0: It, it's so true. Having that compassion for ourselves and, and realizing that it, it really is tough for a lot of people. And during the transition, uh, there's, there's going to be some mistakes made. <laughs> there's going yeah. <laughs> to be a couple, couple drinks, couple cookies eaten. My, yeah. my, <laughs> my, my girlfriend's been baking cookies and I don't know how she expects to bake 12 cookies and me to only eat one a day. Like there's a reason I don't buy the cookies because I'm going through some things emotionally. And yes. and so but, uh
1: yes. <laughs> I mean, oh my goodness, the combination of lockdown and baking can be pretty brutal. And it's funny because I think a lot of people are doing a lot of baking because it feels very sustaining to be able to, you know, watch bread rise or have cookies warming up in the house. And, and it feels very great and creative and nourishing to bake. Um, so, so many people are doing this and then they're also realizing, oh, I'm cre- I'm creating a lot of the finished product. Maybe it's only me or one other person around to eat it. So there's the, the eating part can sometimes be a little bit less, uh, (laughs) less comfortable for somebody once they realize. But, but yeah, I mean, self-compassion is so important. And I think that's another thing that we tend to deny ourselves in our culture. You know, those of us that want to consider ourselves good people often have this narrative where, well, you know, our own needs need to be last. Um, And that's just a problem because oftentimes that's exactly the type of thing that leads to us burning out or being resentful or not having the capacity to then go and do the good things that we want to do. You know, I I work with parents about this all the time. They're constantly putting their children's needs first, for instance, if they're doing that, but then they're underslept and they're angry and they're impatient and they're not enjoying their kids and they're resentful. And it's like, okay, you know, in reality, if you actually took that weekend away, if you actually went to that brunch, if you actually said, no, not now, I'm, I'm reading a book, you actually would enjoy the rest of it and, and be more calm and present and engaged the rest of the time.
0: Absolutely. I, I know so many, I have so many of my friends and clients who I'm like, get some sleep. And I, I think we feel like we should be doing more because we quote unquote, have more time at home. And, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's kind of put people in a treadmill, but, yes. uh, but you know, it's, this is, but you know, this experience, like, just like our thoughts, it, they pass, right? Like, we have mm-hmm. to remind ourselves that our the state of the country, of the world, of the epidemic, like this too shall pass. Can you talk more about how, how thoughts just, they don't stick around very long, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and moods too. And I think that's so important because a lot of times we have stopped trusting that process. You know, so many people I work with, if there's something very painful that we're going to talk about, the, the idea is, well, I, I I can't talk about that or I'll I'll never stop crying. Or you know, well, if I if I really think about this and face this, then it'll just put me in a terrible mood, and and that will last forever. <laughs> you know, it's this idea that it will never change, that our moods will never change. You know, the same is is true of folks that are mired in the darkness of of deep depression. Part of the problem of that is that it distorts your belief system and it distorts your judgment to the point where you really can't remember having felt normal, and you certainly don't think that you'll be able to feel normal again. And that's such a dangerous aspect of depression, but it's also just a dangerous aspect of our general attitude towards moods. You know, a lot of times it's more helpful to think of moods as being kind of the weather of your mind. And and we can try to understand why the mood is there and we can learn something from the mood. And if it's a bad mood, you know, we can take steps to try to figure out the triggers and to not have it happen as frequently. But on the other hand, most of the time our moods do change, even if we don't do anything, (laughs) you know, barring the more significant, you know, again, severe sort of um, recalcitrant type of depression. It's, you know, it's a lot of times our moods will pass just like our thoughts will pass. And trusting that process becomes really really important. And I think yeah, in terms of the pandemic, you know, I think that's where self-compassion is so important too, you know, as you were saying, like the the idea of, you know, we got to do all this, we got to be productive, we have more time, we got to get these things done. I know so many people who say, well, at least, you know, I mean, I emerge from this having done x, y, and z. And Sometimes it's a creative, great endeavor that makes them feel wonderful and that that boosts their mood and, and is helpful. But other times it's just an extra demand. You know, it's it's this notion of being productive for productives, for productivity's sake. And I think that's when we start to run into burnout.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you have a, a daily routine? Has it changed for you? I mean, being a, a writer, psychologist, has that Has it changed for you drastically?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. For for me, in some ways, it's changed so much. And then in other ways, it's not changed as much as other people. So um, certainly not seeing my clients in the actual office has been a significant change. But on the other hand, there were already some clients that I had already worked with on video. So it wasn't totally foreign for me to be doing that. You know, just like, okay, on the one hand, not going in and, and teaching. I'm on the faculty of Georgetown. Not being in the classroom was a huge difference there. Um, You know, but on the other hand, I wasn't there full time in the first place. So I already did a lot of emailing students, Skyping with students, you know, from home sometimes anyway. I think the biggest change, quite frankly, is that, you know, having three kids that are not at school, I think has been, you know, that's something that that is just day to day, the biggest drastic change and it's taken adjustment for our whole family, obviously, but, um, but yeah, I was never somebody that was in the same office nine to five anyway, since I did all different things and I sometimes worked from home in some capacity. So I have tried to keep some semblance of a routine, but of course, you know, there's got to be flexibility within that, especially with kids. And I, and I find that, you know, the idea of structure or some days go better than others. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. Somebody, I heard somebody mention they're just some deleted days. And I was like, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I love <laughs> like, that. I'm just going to delete this day. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I'm talking to people now that are really speaking to how much it just feels like a blur, right? Like there's just some days where it's like, wait did that day even happen? Like, wait, was that last week or was that yesterday? I think the concept of time has gotten so strange for folks because it feels like it's been a day. It feels like it's been a year. It's, it's very odd.
0: Well, I, I think that that lends itself to the importance of uh, finding ways to ground ourselves uh, in, in the present moment. And, and really mm-hmm. in, instead of thinking about what, what's, tomorrow or next week or the next two, two, you know, I can't wait for everybody's like 2021. I can't wait for it to be here. (laughs) And it's like, if we haven't figured out how to ground ourselves in the current moment, uh, then we're not going to be, we're still going to be on that same, uh, treadmill in 2021.
1: Yes. Yes. And that that kind of speaks to the myth of arrival too, which, you know, I devoted the last chapter of the book to, because I think this is so ingrained in our culture, this idea that only once we get to a certain arrival point in life, you know, a better job, the perfect partner, a bigger apartment, graduating school, losing five pounds, you know, whatever it is, this idea that only once we arrive, that's when things will really get moving. That's when we'll feel worthy. That's when our life will really start, start kicking. Right. And, I think we set ourselves up for disappointment so, so much when we live this way because we're basically always having an eye towards the fast forward button and it's very hard to engage with the current moment. It's very hard to ground ourselves in what our current reality is and, and find joy in that when we're constantly sort of saying, well, well, only when this happens or, you know, well, you know, that's when I'll really feel better about myself is, you know, once I get my braces off, I mean, gosh, I see it in teenagers too. And so it's, it's really, I think, right now we're at risk at doing we're at risk of doing this on a very large scale because we're all waiting desperately for life to return to some semblance of normal, whatever that might look like. And yet, in the process, if we focus too hard on that arrival point, we're really kind of denying ourselves an opportunity right now to sort of engage with things how they currently are.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought up the braces because you're right. It's like we, we have this idea of, you know, once I lose five pounds, once I get the braces off, uh, once I move here, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then all of a sudden I'll be forever forever, forever happy or peaceful or um, mm-hmm. what have you. But it's kind of like, uh, like if you ever had home repairs done and you go, well, we're mm-hmm. just going to do the cabinets and then you get the cabinets done. And then now all of a sudden it doesn't go with the floor. You're like, all right, well now the cabinet doesn't go with the floor, so we gotta get the floor down. You get the floor, and then mm-hmm. it just becomes one thing after the next, and you're like, we gotta tear the whole house down. Like like none of this, yes. none of this is working. And, <laughs> and yes, and so we, we do the same thing, you know, emotionally with our thoughts, and it, it, yeah, it ties into that myth of arrival.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And it's so common. And it's like this moving goalposts concept, right? Like, well, this will make me happy. And then you get there. Oh, just kidding. You know, not this, but that and and really, when you think of it, I mean, if we had a boss that constantly said, okay, here's what you're supposed to do. And, and that's an A plus type of <laughs> of behavior. Oh, just kidding. No, you have to do this. Oh, just kidding. That's not good enough anymore. I mean, we'd be driven nuts by a boss that did that. And of course, unfortunately, some do, but we do this to ourselves all the time. And, you know, part of it, part of it is this idea of hedonic adaptation, right? So once we get to a certain point, something that supposedly was going to make us so happy, we get there and well, we, we kind of get used to it, right? I mean, it, it doesn't bring the same joy that it did it before. Right. And so when we've put all of our eggs in that basket of thinking, well, once I get this, once I get that, you know, those new cabinets, oh man, that's just going to make me so happy on a daily basis. It's like, well, we get used to the new cabinets at some point. And so then we're going to be looking for that same sort of coping mechanism. Well, I bet you if I had that cool farmhouse style sink, now my kitchen would really take out, you know, and it's like, okay, well, at what point are we actually stopping to engage with the present moment we're really denying ourselves that opportunity because we're also saying that we're not worthy in the meantime you know we're also we're telling ourselves each time with each new sort of myth of arrival variation we're telling ourselves that right now we're not good enough and that's a fundamentally unfulfilling way to live
0: absolutely I, i i especially it resonates with me that you ended it uh, with that statement because you know when I was uh, with my last therapist the thing that I had to write every day was uh, I am enough and I Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people who we see as high achievers are motivated by that feeling that they aren't enough and and that they don't have enough money and uh, or enough cars or enough tv shows or enough hits or, or whatever and to us, it looks like confidence and, and ambition, but th- there is a, a, some level of inadequacy that's, that's motivating them.
1: Yes, yes. And there are several stories like that in the book because I think high-achieving people are really prone to this because what happens is they do actually meet their goals and so they know they're capable of meeting the next one and so they throw the next one up there and i think the difference that becomes so key is what's the true sense of purpose there what's the true meaning of the goals you know do the goals align with your values do they do they feel like something that is worthy truly of of your time you know along the way or are the goals sort of just these ideas of checking a box and the whole point is to get to the destination so that you can have achieved the goal, right? There's Like I always joke, like I, I would love to have run a marathon, but I have no interest in actually running a marathon, right? There's an important difference there. And I think so many times for us, the goal turns into what... I want to check this box because I want to have checked this box. But um, there's a little bit less about an actual sense of purpose of doing so, right? And so I think, you know, it's important for us to sort of look at that because so many times we can just become objects on this path towards goal meeting. You know, again, there's a story in the book about this where someone just, she was super high achieving and then she got to the point where, she had kind of achieved everything, right? And there was sort of a sense of emptiness, like this is supposed to be the happiest time of my life. I got the grad degree. I met the love of my life. I love my condo. I get to have a job that I really like. What's going on? Why do I feel so blah? And with exploration, we really realized it was because she had always kind of lived as an object on the path to reaching her goals rather than really choosing goals that truly resonated with her and and really reflected her values and really, you know, along the way, actually made her feel fulfilled.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that, you know, I've I've had some clients who uh, struggled with suicidality and a, a lot of it is, you know, they failed at something or felt like they failed at something. and and the, and the rage and it became overwhelmed with emotions and want to end their life. And, uh, and, but when we get to the, the, the source of it, the root of it, that they were living their life according to someone else's expectations. They, they had Mm -hmm. never taken time to, to, to ask themselves if what they were pursuing, uh, or trying to achieve aligned with their values. So I'm glad you mentioned that because even I am like starting to, uh, uh, you know, go through my list of of goals and priorities and, and how I how I go through my day. And I'm like, is this according to my values or am I just trying to, you know, uh, check off some boxes uh, to yeah. say I've done something?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's so important to look at that. And, and I agree for so many times, especially if we've defined ourselves by our goals, we can feel so despondent when we don't meet them because we've identified with that goal for so long it it feels like us you know i've worked with people well you know if i'm not going to become a doctor then then who am I? You know, and the thing is, the the other part that I think we don't often recognize is that goals can change and should change. You know, goals might not fit us anymore. And I think we have a hard time letting go of that. And there's a chapter in the book about letting go because I think so many times we're carrying around these unmet goals that maybe would have suited us five years ago, 10 years ago, but we're continuing not to meet them because they don't suit us anymore. And now we're just feeling bad about having not met them. Instead of saying, "This isn't a valid goal for me anymore. This this isn't aligned with my values anymore at this point in my life."
0: Well, you know, and I realize part of that 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 angst and and what kind of motivates that too is, uh, at least for me, is that that FOMO, that fear of, of of missing out, and that fear of somebody asking you about your day, like what'd you do today, Mm-mm. and and it's like Mm-mm. you never want to say. I did nothing. And, yeah. and so we're trying to fill our day, especially our, our weekends, you know, that on Monday, it's like you clearly you should have a story from the weekends of, of things that you've done. <laughs> so now you got to run around to the farmer's market and, and go to a play <laughs> and, uh you, you know, attend a football, like all these things, just so that on Monday we can have this list of things to rattle off.
1: Yes, yes. And and I never want to paint too broad a brush about social media, but I do think that is one of the negatives, this idea that we have to have this beautiful, entertaining narration of our lives and that it's got to be up to other people's standards. And it really kind of feeds into as well this, this sort of, this busy expectation, right? I think that's what's been so interesting to watch, obviously, during lockdowns and everything, because I think in American culture, we kind of view being busy as a status symbol to to some extent. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of what you say in chit-chat, oh, how have things been? Oh, busy, you know? Like, <laughs> have you ever heard anyone say, well... I don't know. I'm just twiddling my thumbs, not having much to do. You know, I mean, that's just not the way that we think it's acceptable to to talk or to live our lives. And And it's fine, you know, when people have energy and they want to learn things and they want to take the initiative and they want to fill their lives with stuff. I mean, that sounds wonderful. I think the dark side is when we're trying to be busy for the sake of being busy. You know, it's the difference between being in motion just because we feel uncomfortable being still versus being in motion because it actually makes sense and feels good. And we're doing what we actually want to be doing.
0: I, I, I love that. I I want to get into, you talk about visualization in your book. I've read so many uh, different books that talk about visualization and they some of them have different takes on it what have you found has been uh, the best way to, to visualize in terms of detoxing our thoughts?
1: Yeah, you know, this is another game changer that I've seen help so many clients, just the idea of giving a visual form to some of their uncomfortable emotions or thoughts. And, and I should preface this with the fact that there's a segment of the population that doesn't have what we call a, a mind's eye. And in fact, there might be somebody listening who who doesn't realize that they don't have this because they assumed that nobody has this. You know, most of us can close our eyes and sort of evoke in our mind's eye, as we call it, a, a picture of something, you know, your mother's face or the your bedroom and, you know, in your teenage years or whatever. We can kind of see that in whatever sense it means to actually see something. Whereas there is a segment of folks for whom, you know, they can recall the details. I know my mother has, you know, full lips or brown eyes, but it's not uh, actually seeing her face, you know? So so I should say, you know, visualization doesn't work for absolutely everyone because it's hard for certain people to sort of evoke that. Um, we're learning more and more about that. It's called aphantasia. But, um, but for most of us, being able to actually give visual or physical form to a thought or a feeling is very powerful because it gives us another way to reckon with it and another way to experience it. So, you know, I've worked with people who guilt is not just guilt. It is a sort of heavy, dark pit that they feel in their stomach, right? You can pair this visual also with with where it feels in your body. Or, you know, the worry blob. I had a client where we called it literally the worry blob and we pictured it And it was this sort of gelatinous, gray, kind of gross, shiny thing that she would sort of picture coming over her. And and what the visual does, first of all, is it helps you separate from the thought. It helps you identify it as something that doesn't actually have to be part of you, even if you're feeling it in your body. But second of all, it also gives you a pathway out. So it really gives you a sense of, okay, how could I counteract that? You know, if I have this worry blob, what do I want to picture helping it pass? You know, maybe maybe you're literally going to picture it sort of disintegrating in the air, or maybe, you know, maybe when you have tension, you feel it as sort of ice that's hard and cold and and sharp, but you actually watch it melting. And so, the, the power of the visual is it really, you know, helps us give us, it helps us focus on a way to watch it pass in our brains even. And you can get metaphorical with this too. I mean, it's a it's a very classic mindfulness um, exercise to think about leaves on a stream passing by and the leaves are just moving along with the stream. And maybe your leaves are your anxious thoughts or, you know, I've had people visualize some of their worries as, you know, crumbs of dirt that now they're watching down the drain or birds that are flying away into the distance or a cloud that eventually passes on its own. So it can be very personalized and, and quite frankly, it can be very creative. I mean, I've never had two people say the exact same thing as how they visualize it, but, but it really can be a game changer because it gives you a new way to conceptualize what you're dealing with and it makes it less scary and, and less powerful, you know, this, this big looming emotion. Suddenly, it's kind of a physical thing.
0: It's, it's so fascinating because, you know, I played high school and college football and this is the thing that uh, we're taught as athletes and, but we don't really teach uh, the everyday person this in school, the the power of of visualizing uh, of what we want or, or, uh, mm-hmm. or visualizing our feelings. And, and it, it athlete after athlete, Bruce Lee said that uh, he was able to, he came back stronger after his back surgery through. Uh, visualization as did tiger wolf was a, a better golfer uh yeah. uh past post surgery because of a uh, a visualization technique so uh there is something very powerful about taking the time to see it and, and feel yeah. it
1: yeah Yeah. And those two examples in particular really point to the fact that this is, you know, the mind and body, this is one construct, really. I mean, you're talking about physical injury and being able to heal with more strength. I mean, I think so many people, you know, yeah, my brain is part of my body, but it's this totally separate entity altogether. That's how it feels. Whereas in reality, we're just scratching the surface about the ways that the mind and body really are connected for better and for worse, I should say. Are
0: there are there things that we can do to enhance the visualization? Because uh, I'm just, as as we're talking about this, um, I'm thinking about how uh, colors, tastes, sounds, all those can help cue up uh, different uh uh, visualization techniques or, uh, yeah, uh, deep in them, so to speak, are, are there uh, techniques that we could use in conjunction with that?
1: Did yeah, absolutely. And that's where we can really get more into sort of mindful meditation, mindfulness meditation. And, and if you, you know, are able to sort of relax your body and get some space that's comfortable. You have five or 10 minutes. You know, this is where people really feel the benefits because by using all of their senses, they can enhance the visualization. It's like now I'm not just picturing the calm blue sky but I'm also imagining the sound of the waterfall nearby and I'm thinking about how the warm sand would feel underneath my hands and I'm thinking about the smell of the ocean and suddenly you know it's okay it's not even just a visual but I've got a couple extra minutes and I'm at work about to go into a a, you know anxiety provoking meeting but just for a couple of minutes I've been able to bring down my autonomic nervous system arousal to the point where I'm going to be calmer in the meeting
0: you know so this is a suicide prevention podcast and 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 if somebody so somebody comes into you and uh uh, they just gone through a breakup and and say that they they want to end their life how do they how do they how do you uh use this structure to help them uh talk through this
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first step is really just being able to sit there with their pain and connect with them. I think it's such a powerful thing. And it's, it's one of the reasons why therapy is so beneficial, such a powerful thing to have another human being, being able to bear witness to your pain, you know, to have someone else be able to, to really understand it, to not negate it, to not turn away from it, to not say, well, you know, you got to get over that, or it's not the end of the world, but to really actually bear witness to the level of pain. And then of course, what we need to do. Well, I always should say, you know, if I'm concerned about someone being in danger um, or at risk for suicidality, we're going to need to sort of establish um, some some basic alliance between the two of us where there is trust, where there is caring, where there is sort of a protocol of what to do if you do feel like you're about to take that step. But um, but in the longer-term work, it really is about reconceptualizing this loss, this loss of the relationship, and figuring out how to derive meaning from it, how to move forward with the loss, much like we do with, with grief over the death of a loved one, how to mo- move forward with the loss in such a way that you know we're not getting over it, but we're incorporating it into ourselves in a way that... that helps us grow. And, you know, to somebody who's just been in the throes of a, of a heartbreaking breakup, this sounds like, well, I'm never going to get there. You know, I want the person back, or this was the love of my life. I can't believe this has happened. There is no meaning to be found. This shouldn't have happened. But over time, depending on this particular situation, that's part of what we would work to do. And to also connect with the other parts of the person's life that can still bring meaning so not just the meaning of this awful experience admittedly but to reintegrate the person into the things that matter with them it's you know it's other people it's creative endeavors it's nature it's love of family it's it's you know professional pursuits it's all of those types of things because i think ultimately it really does come down to this this question of the larger purpose the larger meaning that we connect with and i think when people are at their most despondent you know it's it's not necessarily that they're just super sad although that could be part of it but they're feeling empty they're they're feeling like there's nothing right and i think for a lot of people they think that depression is about you know the absence of joy and of course that, that's often part of it, but it's also about the absence of a, of a sense of meaning. And I think it's so important for us as human beings to try to help each other when we, when we feel that emptiness, because oftentimes the world can make us feel kind of empty and we can be skating along on the surface and things superficially look like they're great and we're not, you know, we shouldn't be lonely, quote unquote, because we're surrounded by people and we have good friends and family but it's that meaning that's that's missing. We don't really feel connected with anyone. And so there's a lot of work to be done when somebody comes in in that level of pain, but there's also a lot of hope that we can really, really help them.
0: Wow, that was such a, a beautiful response. I love that you said uh, it's not about getting over it. It's about incorporating it, incorporating the loss, incorporating the hurt, incorporating the experience. Um, Mm -hmm. that's such a beautiful thing and then the other part that you mentioned in that you you, you said like okay the the relationship fell apart but how do we reintegrate uh the other parts of your life that give you meaning and and that's so Mm -hmm. beautiful because it brings up the wellness wheel of you know there's your your uh relationship your health your uh your job your occupation and and whatever the other three things are and Uh, Mm -hmm. as we help that person see that those other areas are still intact and still, and there's still connection and meaning then, then we're giving them some life raft. So I, I love that. It's such, such a beautiful, uh, response. Uh, yes. Thank thank you. you. Uh, is there anything that we haven't covered that you, that you feel like we should discuss from your book or just from your experiences, uh, for, for the listeners out there, uh, who may be struggling?
1: Yeah, you know, we've covered so many concepts that I think are so. Important and and I really appreciate this time. I think one thing that comes to mind that we maybe haven't covered is is the notion of blind spots and how we all have these cognitive traps that we fall into and how we all have certain lenses that we tend to put on. You know, we all have our individual lenses, but we also, you know, as human beings collectively look through certain lenses like the negativity bias, you know, most of us are more. to giving more weight to negative information than to positive information. And that's another evolutionary adaptation that back in the day when we were dwelling in caves, it, it helped us because it helped us detect threats. So of course we needed to pay more attention to scary information or bad information in a negative way, you know, compared to happy information. But in our modern life, we really are still biased this way and yet it doesn't do us as much good you know it's like you go into the the work performance review and it was generally good and there was one comment that your boss made that wasn't so good and that's what sticks with you and that's what you tell your partner that night and that's what sort of is is keeping you awake at night and so i think you know one of the things that i was really grateful to be able to do in the book was to outline some of these classic cognitive traps that we all have because awareness is the first step into combating them. You know, when we can view that as a distorted lens and we can recognize, okay, that's not objective, that is an unreliable narrator, that is that, you know, heckler in my mental audience making me see things this way. And it's a bias that a lot of people have, but it doesn't make it true. When we can identify it that way, then we can actually step aside from it and and get some space from it
0: it's literally you know that idea of our mind is playing tricks on us mhm and yeah right
1: yeah and it goes back to that that same idea that we don't have to trust all of our thoughts that you know our that a lot of times there are kinks and tricks that happen and you know when i've worked with people with obsessive compulsive disorder too this is this is such a meaningful change that they're able to make to say you know what yeah sometimes my thoughts misfire and it's not the end of the world. And I don't, you know, I can have the thought to do this. I don't have to fight that thought. I don't have to talk myself out of that thought. I don't have to view myself as damaged for having this thought. I don't have to immediately act on this thought with the ritual that I've developed. I can just have the thought and I can say, huh, you know that was a strange thought. I always bring up to my, my classes when we're teaching about sort of obsessions and ruminations and this idea of, you know, fusing with your thought to the point where you believe that, you know, thoughts are equivalent to, to acting on them. I always bring up the idea like, okay, let's say you're sitting in class right now and you have the thought, what if I came up and punched Professor Bonnier in the face, right? And they're always kind of like shocked that, you know, I said that I say, you know, you can go ahead and have that thought. You might've that thought. About, does that mean you're going to do it? No. Is it the same thing as doing it? No. Does it mean you're a bad, aggressive person? No. Sometimes you have weird thoughts. Sometimes things misfire. You know, sometimes, as you said, our, our mind plays tricks on us. And it's all about what we do with the thoughts. That's ultimately what matters. And that's what, you know, detox your thoughts really helps examine and make changes in.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bonier, for sharing your thoughts. And uh, please plug all your things. Where can people find you? Where can they get the book? Be shameless.
1: Yeah, well, that, thank you so much for having me, Leo. It's been such a pleasure. And I just got to say, I so appreciate your sensitive conversations and what you're doing around these topics that I quite frankly think are just not discussed nearly enough in in empathetic and, and calm and rational and supportive ways. So I really thank you for that. Um, yeah. I would love for people to reach out. They can find me at detoxyourthoughts.com. your um, I'm on social media as Dr. Andrea Bonnier. that's B O N I O R. Um, but yeah, I'd love to stay in touch and I'd love to hear from folks and, and what they hear, what they think of the book.
0: I love that. And I'll plug, I'll link all those in a show notes uh, and ask this of all my guests. Uh, Cause I always feel like there's one person who may be listening in who may be on the precipice of, of ending their life before you kill mm-hmm. yourself. What would you say to them?
1: I would say that you are more connected to people than you realize that often when we're in a suicidal state of mind, We are unable to see just how connected we are to other people, just how much of a negative impact the loss of us would mean, even to people that we might not even realize actually know us and think of us and value us. And so I know it's a cliche to say that you're not alone, but I mean it in the sense that there are people who would miss you and you're part of something larger than yourself.
0: Thank you so much for being a part of this, Andrea. Thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you reaching out to get help for you calling the 800 suicide number, for you going to see a therapist or a counselor, just calling a friend, uh, or just, just sitting with yourself. Just, just remembering that even if you do nothing, the emotions and the mood and the thoughts will pass like clouds, like a stream, uh, running over you, uh, Go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. And let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Andrea.
1: Thanks, Leo.